This is Doc Fitz, and welcome back. Very proud to share with you today the knife at the gunfight, violence and the surgeon, as presented at the surgical grand rounds for the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City for January 25th, 2017. Before we get started, I wanted to thank Dr. Joseph Sacron of the Johns Hopkins Hospital for some ideas on how to present some of the information contained within today's talk. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay tuned. Good morning. First of all, thank you for the privilege of the podium, and thank you everyone for investing the time and energy to listen to what is important to me. First, I recognize the title of my talk today, Knife at the Gunfight, Violence and the Surgeon, is provocative but just vague enough that you may not be sure what I have in store. But what I'm going to do is perhaps a little bit challenging to convince a room full of Upper East Side surgeons at a private hospital who do not take any trauma call. Number one, Baltimore is important. Now, I recognize that many people from Baltimore who come to give presentations in New York feel the need to make this point. Part of that is our pathology as Baltimoreans. We seem to have a sort of second city inferiority complex being so close but yet in the shadow of D.C. and, of course, always in the shadow of New York City. However, bear with me because I think this is an important premise to my ultimate point. Number two, violence is a disproportionate cause of surgical morbidity and mortality. This is easy to prove, and I intend to do that today. And my thesis is that a multidisciplinary public health approach to gun violence must be a surgical priority, for us as surgeons and for our professional organizations. So first, I wanted to give you a little bit of background about Baltimore in case you are completely unaware. Founded in 1729, and since it was the home uh, briefly for the Second Continental Congress, it can claim to have briefly been the U.S. capital. The population is about 620,000. However, that's down from a peak of just short of a million in 1950, officially about 949,000. However, the entire metro area is about 2.7 million. For the city itself, it is a predominantly African-American city, about 63% African-American, about 29% white, 5% Hispanic, and then another mix of smaller proportions of other ethnicities. However, Baltimore is important to us partially because of its importance within the medical field and particularly within surgery. Two world-class surgical institutions, the Johns Hopkins Hospital and then the University of Maryland Hospital, are within the city. 
Hopkins Hospital on the east side is well known for the first chair of the Department of Surgery, William Stewart Halstead, who in many ways is the father of a modern American surgical education. He, of course, invented the radical mastectomy among other surgeries. He's often credited with performing the first cholecystectomy in the United States. He also did early research on cocaine and became convinced, along with several other of his co-researchers, of the powers of cocaine as a sort of general tonic. And he, among many of his co-researchers, became addicted to cocaine. There were attempts to treat his cocaine addiction with morphine. And so, unfortunately, like much of Baltimore City today, spent the rest of his life balancing his cocaine and opiate addictions. Across town on the west side, University of Maryland Hospital's claim to fame is its R. Adams Crowley Shock Trauma Center, which was founded by Dr. Crowley as almost an experimental laboratory with patients in severe shock that established this golden hour concept, which is the basic paradigm for trauma management, uh, and also implemented a lot of military trauma research into a civilian setting. However, even within this legacy of Baltimore healthcare is a legacy of inequality, racial inequality in particular, which I think is central to understanding Baltimore as a whole. And two figures which illustrate that are, first of all, Vivian Thomas, a man who was unable to afford a medical education despite desiring to become a physician and was able to get a job after being a carpenter to then being a surgical technician in Alfred Blaylock's laboratory, first in Nashville and then followed Blaylock to Baltimore at Hopkins. Thomas was extremely gifted and motivated and was the primary driving force in a lot of Blaylock's research while Blaylock was very busy operating, and in fact can widely be credited with developing the Blaylock Tusig shunt, which is the treatment, uh, surgical treatment for Tetralogy of Fallot. There's a well-documented anecdote that the first time Blaylock performed this surgery, he had to call Thomas into the operating room to look over his shoulder and ensure that he was doing it correctly. However, for many years, Thomas did not get the credit he deserved nor the support to further his own education. Another example is a uh, Miss Henrietta Lacks, who is from Baltimore County, just outside of Baltimore City. She died at cervi from cervical cancer uh, after having been treated at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, however, cells from her cancer were almost singularly unique for the cell's ability to reproduce on a cell culture and have become the foundation for most research on human cell cultures. However, her descendants were largely unaware of her contribution to medical science, and many of them have continued to be unable to afford higher education such as college. Although, more recently, there have been efforts for a sort of truth and reconciliation with that family. And of course, one of the greatest pathologies in Baltimore is violence, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. The title of this slide, Oh Baltimore, Ain't It Hard Just to Live, is from actually a Randy Newman song, although the Nina Simone version is devastating, and I encourage everyone here to take a listen to it. And during my lifetime in Baltimore, there have been about 9,400 homicides. Uh, in 2015, this was the second highest murder rate nationally for cities of comparable size. So where does that fit in to the national context? If the American surgeon is the knife, then American violence is the gunfight. And in a comparison of the United States and other high-income countries, while homicides were about six times higher than other comparable countries, this was largely driven by firearm homicides, 
which were about 20 times higher. Non-firearm homicides were in the two to three times higher than average, but comparable to other countries. While non-firearm homicides have been continually declining since about 1980, the fluctuation in homicide within the country is almost entirely because of firearm homicides. So nationally, the most predominant causes of years of potential life lost, and this means causes of death before the age of 65. Nationally, trauma is the number one cause, but that's mostly unintentional injury and suicide, and to a much lesser extent, homicide, which causes about 5% of years of potential life lost. However, within African American males in the state of Maryland, homicide causes almost 18% of years of life lost, far more than any other cause. And this is data from the Center for Disease Control. So Baltimore, the largest city in Maryland, is a driver of that. So I wanted to look at the epidemiology of murder in Baltimore. So looking at a, a year on these killing streets, and what we can see is that like a lot of other cities, there was a peak in the early 90s with about 350 murders in 1993. And this slowly declined, although not as fast in other cities, until 2015, where it shot up. This is a map, uh, or rather a graph, of homicides by month from 2014 and 2015. And what we can see is about two-thirds of the way through this time period, what had been the ceiling, the maximum number of murders per month, became the floor. And if anyone is in the audience uh, from Baltimore, I think you'll know what month that is that I'm talking about. Now it was April to May of 2015. So what happened at that time that really changed the paradigm in Baltimore? And I think largely this has to be seen as being sparked by the death of Freddie Gray and then its aftermath. So Freddie Gray was a 25-year-old man from West Baltimore. He was arrested in April 12, 2015, basically for running from police. Sometime between his arrest and being driven to the jail in a police van, he suffered a near-complete transection of his cervical spinal cord and died a couple weeks later in the shock trauma center. There were riots following his funeral, and really, since that time, Baltimore has been devastated and has not recovered. And a lot of that has been driven in the West Baltimore uh, or the Western District, looking at the Baltimore City Police Organization. So this is a map of the Western District. Though it wasn't widely published, I was able to, using census data, get an estimate for the number of residents in the Western District, which is about 38,600. Uh, and within that data, about 17,000 males. In the Western District in 2015, there were 66 murders among these 38,000 residents. So how does that compare to other geographic areas. Homicide rate is usually published as a rate per 100,000. Uh, in the United States for 2015, that rate was 4.6 homicides per 100,000. Baltimore had a rate about 13 times that, 55 murders per 100,000. The Western District had about three times the rate for Baltimore as a whole, or 171 per 100,000. And if we look just among males, that was 370 murders per 100,000 in the Western District. So it's a little bit crude to say, but that's like a third of a percent of males in the Western District had the risk of being killed in 2015. So comparing it to other, comparing it to other cities with high homicide rates, we can see that's well above Camden, New Jersey, which had 86 homicides per 100,000, or even East St. Louis, which was about 102 per 100,000, or even the city with the highest published murder rate not in 
not due to war with Caracas, Venezuela, about 120 murders per 100,000. So if we look at Baltimore as a whole and look at where murders are occurring, to the untrained eye, this may seem like a map of murders scattered all throughout the city. However, if we look more closely, there are certainly homicide clusters particularly in West Baltimore, East Baltimore, Northwest Baltimore, up along Park Heights, and then in some other areas such as Westport, Cherry Hill, and in the south, and then just east of York Road in North Baltimore. And I think what's interesting in looking at other maps of the city is how this echoes things such as race and poverty. This is a map looking at uh, demographics of the city of both income and race, and we can see the low-income minority, predominantly minority neighborhoods, very much mimic this murder map. We see clusters in East Baltimore, West Baltimore, those areas in South Baltimore I mentioned, as well as Park Heights in Northwest Baltimore and along just east of York Road. Now, one problem with that kind of map is that it can lend itself to racist narratives. And that's why I wanted to bring attention to lead poisoning, because this is clearly uh, not something that has to do with uh, violent behavior of a race per se. But what we see is that the maps of lead poisoning incidents also echoes the same things we see in that murder map and the race and poverty map, with clusters in East Baltimore, West Baltimore, Northwest Baltimore along Park Heights, North Baltimore, East of York Road, as well as in some areas of uh, Southern Baltimore. This is important not only as a marker of poverty, and uh, as evidence of a legacy of neglect and housing discrimination, but also because lead poisoning has really important neurological effects on cognition and impulse control. And uh, I'll show some uh, research that suggests it may also be associated with violent behavior. And for whatever it's worth, Freddie Gray, for example, is someone that had been diagnosed with lead poisoning. So this is a, this is a chart that shows the rise and fall of lead poisoning uh, in the United States. And basically in the green line, it shows the average lead level in preschool aged children. And then staggered by 20 years is the rate of violent crimes per 100,000 people. And what we see is that the violent crime rate almost perfectly by about 20 years has a rise and then a fall just in the same way that the lead, blood lead levels did. This suggests, and while correlation does not prove causation, uh, it suggests the possibility that lead poisoning in preschool age is, uh, could be an epidemiological predictor of violence 20 years later as these preschoolers grow up. So then when we look back at this map of murder in Baltimore, what we're really seeing, I believe, is the geography of race poverty, housing discrimination, and how that echoes in violence in the 21st century in Baltimore.
So then what can be done? What are the options of working against violence? And I think there's three strategies that seem clear to me. Policy-based interventions, hospital-based interventions, or community-based interventions. Uh, when we look at policy, I think it has to focus on gun policy. It's well known in, in previous research that gun ownership is a risk factor for homicide. Having a gun in the home increases the risk for homicide for one of the members of that home by a factor of three. Other risk factors include illicit drug use, domestic violence, and prior arrests, especially for violent offenses. So it makes sense that policies to keep firearms from high-risk people, such as those with violent criminal pasts or those with a history of domestic violence, would be a reasonable policy strategy. And in fact, the Eastern Association for the Sur Surgery of Trauma uh, helped undertake a systematic review of such firearm policies, which they described as restrictive gun laws. In their systematic review of the literature, they found 14 studies looking at the effect of such policies. And in fact, 13 of the 14 studies appeared to show reduction of some firearm-related injuries, homicides, or suicides. In particular, you may know Washington, D.C. has a gun ban uh, where handguns cannot be purchased or legally carried in the city. Uh, this gun ban was associated with a statistically significant decrease in homicides that appear to be due to the gun ban. Furthermore, uh, comprehensive background checks among these many studies was consistently associated with decreased firearm hom homicide rates. And so uh, these restrictive gun laws were also associated consistently with decreased firearm homicide and suicide rates. Uh, and importantly, a decrease in intimate partner firearm homicide was found when there were laws that prohibited abusers from purchasing firearms, such as those who had a restraining order against them. Requiring a permit to purchase a firearm associated with background checks showed a significant decrease in firearm homicides. And in the case of Missouri, the repeal of such permit laws was associated with an increase in firearm homicide rates. Now, there are some differences among the laws. It appeared that the comprehensive background checks and prohibition against individuals with a history of intimate partner violence from purchasing a firearm decreased the incidence of homicide, whereas a waiting period decreased the incidence of firearm suicide. Uh, this paper also looked at the literature regarding concealed carry laws. There were found to be 13 uh, studies on the effects of concealed carry laws, and there was no evidence of a violent suppressive effect in these studies. And in fact, while not consistent, some of these studies showed an increased risk of firearm-related violence for those with a concealed carry permit. So while re so-called restrictive gun laws uh, are associated with a decrease in firearm injury and violence, Concealed carry laws may be associated with an increase. So how about what are the options for a hospital-based intervention against violence? The basic theory behind these interventions is that trauma, a traumatic injury to a patient serves as a teachable moment in which uh, the patient may be open to changes in high-risk behavior. The components of these interventions typically involve some evaluation for readiness to change and evaluation of the patient's service needs, such as education, training, psychiatric, family and conflict revolution services, some amount of education, and then the involvement of social workers, case workers, and often parole officers uh, for those who agree to participate. 
And essential to these strategies is a longitudinal follow-up that work with these patients after they're released to try to prevent high-risk uh, behavior and then returning to the hospital as a trauma patient again. And there's pretty good research on such programs. One well-known program was studied at uh, University of Maryland Shock Trauma uh, by Dr. Carnell Cooper, and uh, they did a randomized control trial with about 100 patients that showed that those who participated in the program were three times less likely to be arrested for a violent offense. Uh, there was also analyses that, that showed a cost-benefit uh, to these programs. Uh, a similar randomized control trial in Oakland found a 38% decrease in trauma readmission rates. And I should mention that these uh, programs, particularly shock trauma, were among uh, the highest-risk patients who had presented with penetrating trauma on uh, multiple occasions. There's also an opportunity uh, to use this teachable moment effectively to decrease high-risk drug and alcohol abuse behaviors. There's good evidence that alcohol cessation interventions are more effective right after a patient has been traumatically injured in an incident involving alcohol. And particularly with the younger patients, with pediatric patients, there's uh, good data out of Oakland that a peer intervention uh, with young patients, particularly the younger the age, the more effective, a decrease in future criminal behavior, uh, which is identified as high-risk behavior for future trauma readmission. And the last strategy I wanted to touch on was a community-based intervention against violence. Within the United States, the brand for these sort of community-based interventions that has been the most widespread is the so-called ceasefire model. This looks a little bit different in different contexts in different cities, but the basic underpinnings of it are that speaking with and communicating with high-risk communities and individuals, engaging them in efforts to change the perceived norms related to violent behavior, offers of mediation and services as alternative to violence, and then pulling levers to disincentivize violent behavior. And that can involve different actors, be they police or otherwise. The first such model came out of uh, Boston, uh, and this was largely done on a collaboration with uh, police and then researchers out of Harvard University. And basically what they found is that uh, they were very effective in one ad hoc incidence in which uh, a violent uh, gang conflict in one neighborhood was addressed by directly telling the gang members at highest risk for violent behavior that violence would not be tolerated and that any uh, violent uh, behavior or incident would be responded with relentless uh, police response uh, and with whatever means was available. However, that if uh, there was no more violence, that that would not be necessary. And at the same time, there was a parallel outreach uh, and investment uh, in a sort of social work aspect in, uh, with outreach workers offering opportunities in education, training, and addiction treatment, as well as offering sort of mediation uh, opportunities. Uh, and interestingly, the uh, Boston Police Department was able to get federal cooperation to target federal resources, resources such as the ATF, which cracked down on illegal sources of seized guns as part of this program very relentlessly, and also the DEA prioritized cases involving gangs that were particularly violent. 
So after the experience in that one uh, community, they made this the policy citywide. And what they saw is after initiation of this intervention in 1995, an immediate and persistent drop in violence, specifically among youth homicide victims 24 and younger. This model was borrowed and in implemented very differently in a different context in Chicago. It was interpreted by uh, a physician, uh, Dr. Gary Slutkin, as representing a sort of infectious disease model for violence and the spread of violence. Uh, he was a physician that had worked in public health work related to tuberculosis, and he saw similarities with how community work to identify people at high risk for the spread of tuberculosis and preventing that spread was similar to identifying people for the high risk of violent behavior and preventing the spread of violent behavior. And... Uh, understanding retaliation as sort of a spread of an infectious concept of violence. In Chicago, there was a decentralized model that had uh, community sites which were very independent, and uh, it employed community members as violence interrupters, as well as professional social workers to do professional outreach, such as that was done in Boston. What was different about Chicago is many of these so-called violence interrupters who were former gang members or even felons that were hired to uh, speak with high-risk individuals in the community, evaluate and identify risks of violence to help mediate conflicts and also to build longitudinal relationships with people identified at high risk for violent behavior. So the program was initially uh, rolled out and then evaluated in seven neighborhoods in Chicago. There was an initial decrease in shooting in six of these areas and a case control study was done with neighborhoods that were identified to be similar but did not have the intervention. And what they found is that in four of the areas, there appeared to be a statistically uh, significant decrease in shootings due to the program, and one area with statistically significant decrease in homicides. However, uh, you know, I'm sure people listening are wondering, well, Chicago is a terrible example with an, a very bad homicide problem right now. And part of the problem that they saw with the ceasefire model is fluctuations with funding. And in fact, in early 2015, the funding for ceasefire was cut and the majority of the sites were closed. And uh, so this is a graph showing that the increase in violence uh, in Chicago appeared to happen almost immediately after this ceasefire program was cut from 71 workers to 10 or from 14 program sites to only one. And in fact, if we look uh, over the course of the history of the program, the initial increase in funding and ceasefire funding and uh, sites was associated with a decrease in violence. And just about every time that funding was interrupted, there was an increase in violence. And when the funding was restored, there was a decrease in violence. Part of the problem with this analysis is that uh, violence also appears to go up when there is uh, increased poverty and decreased financial resources. And the funding of the, these programs probably also reflects the overall economic situation. That being said, there was one site with the so-called uh, Cure Violence program, which is how the ceasefire program has been rebranded in Chicago. And that site has shown a uh, consistent reduction in shootings, which is the only site among all of the police districts in Chicago that has seen that a persistent decrease in violence. So how, how does that relate to Baltimore? How can that be applied there? 
there was an attempt to develop a program in Baltimore modeled after the ceasefire Boston. While this was proposed and developed, it lost political will just before implementation. Uh, there was, however, a program implemented based on the more decentralized Chicago model, first in 2007 in East Baltimore, and also there was one neighborhood uh, site in West Baltimore and one in Southern Baltimore in Cherry Hill. So how effective were these programs? In East Baltimore, they initially experienced 22 months with no homicides and an initial decrease of 53% from expected homicides. Cherry Hill site also saw about a 56% decrease in homicides and a significant decrease in non-fatal shootings. However, the East Baltimore site, after initial success, then saw an increase in shootings. And uh, I think one of the problems there was highlighted when uh, soon after uh, that, there was a raid of the uh, office of the Safe Streets program, which was how the, this uh, ceasefire model was branded in Baltimore. And the raid on that East Baltimore office found drugs and guns. So the, the uh, violence interrupters in this program which is one of his strengths, can also be a vulnerability if these, these workers become involved in criminal and potentially violent high-risk behavior. And I think that's why we saw the East Baltimore uh, Safe Streets program lose its effectiveness. And unfortunately, that also calls into the question the credibility of the entire program and really hurts any potential for this type of model being successful in the near future in Baltimore. So I recognize that I'm speaking to an audience of New Yorkers and must all be thinking, well, what about New York? You haven't said anything about that. And, it, you know, it's well known that New York, the homicide rate has dropped substantially and persistently from a high of 2,245 homicides in 1990 uh, to about just over 300 homicides today in a yearly basis. And I think what we see in New York, although it was not as well studied as in Boston, because the Boston program uh, included researchers from the beginning and set it up in a way to evaluate it from the beginning, there was an attempt in New York at evidence-based policing, uh, and most famously with the use of the CompStat program. There was an attempt for norm changing, uh, similar to the conceptualization of the ceasefire programs, in New York, that was done through broken windows policing. And of course, in New York, there was the economic strength of the city, which is, cannot be replicated in a place like Baltimore. Uh, however, I think Boston not only was able to better study it, but appears to have more effectively targeted it to high-risk uh, individuals. And I think uh, while New York has been very effective at decreasing the rate of violence, there was a cost uh, with the high numbers of stop and frisk and with the very aggressive zero tolerance policing, there was an effect on the community relationship uh, in minority, particularly black and Hispanic communities. Uh, that being said, there has been a change in policy uh, to fewer stop and frisks and a lot fewer arrests more recently, uh, particularly under the de Blasio administration. And what we have seen is that the decrease in violence has been persistent even with fewer stops and fewer arrests. So I think what that shows, I think the danger in focusing on New York without the evidence to evaluate different parts of the program is that if only the very aggressive police behavior is reproduced in another city, I do not think that that is going to reproduce the effects that they had in New York. So what are the problems 
in these interventions? What are the limitations? Within the hospital-based models, there's issues with limited funding. And in speaking with uh, surgeons at shock trauma, they've expressed difficulty in maintaining funding for what has been a well-studied and successful violence intervention program. However, there's also a limited target population, which is only the patients that come into your hospital. Within the community-based programs, there's also issues related to funding and, as I mentioned, with high-risk partners, as came to pass in the Baltimore sites. With policy, one problem is that due to the persistence of gun trafficking, restrictive state gun policy is really limited by the policy in surrounding states. Indeed, within the guns recovered by the ATF in Maryland, half of the guns which have been identified uh, as seized in the use of a crime uh, have come from out of state. And these typically come from southern states, from Virginia, West Virginia, Florida, and Georgia that have lax gun laws. But more importantly within policy, there has been a political attempt and political work done to silence the science around gun policy and its effect on violence. A lot of this began in 1996 with an attempt to defund the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the Center for Disease Control because of their effective research on gun violence. That culminated in 1997 with appropriation rules uh, within the Congress that none of the funds to the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control could be used to advocate or promote gun control. However, that's a little bit of an ambiguous mandate. Nevertheless, it has managed to silence and defund research into gun violence, particularly when it relates to policy. In 2011, those rules were extended by Congress to the NIH as well. And what we see when studying research is that from 1998, after the effects of the initial appropriation rules came into effect, to about 2012, research on gun violence as a percent of total citations in, in medical and public health research have decreased by about 64%. And I think this is a, an important time to recognize the effects of this type of politics. And particularly, I think what motivates uh, and what allows this type of policy uh, is the perception that the lives of people in West Baltimore do not matter on the political stage. But it's important to recognize, and I think it's undisputed fact, that violence is a public health epidemic. And even though violence is perceived as a problem for West Baltimore, in order to prioritize the work against violence, we have to recognize that Baltimore is important, that West Baltimore is important, and that the lives of its residents matter. But even if I can't convince you that black lives matter, I think this graph from data out of Stanford shows uh, that Mass shootings, as defined by shooting incidents in which at least four or more individuals are injured or killed, are increasing in the United States. Whereas in the 60s and 70s, these were very rare events that happened maybe once a year. These have been increasing now to, in the last couple of years, happening 60, 70 times a year or more. And the point is that, you know, being a first grader in Connecticut, being a traveler at the Fort Lauderdale airport, or being the successful dean of a New York City medical school does not protect you from the morbidity or mortality of gun violence. So I just want to summarize first with what I know. First, 
Violence in America is unacceptably morbid and mortal. Number two, hospital-based violence interventions work. Community-based violence interventions have great potential and have critical funding issues. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, policy to limit the access to firearms by high-risk individuals works. It is effective. And what I believe, Baltimore is important. The lives of its citizens matter. And for the work to be effective, at-risk communities and individuals must be treated with respect and dignity. Longitudinal anti-violence follow-up is essential for effective trauma care. And I think that's very important for surgeons who will work with trauma patients to recognize. Community-based work against violence is essential for changing the morbidity of violence. And I think this should also be part of our work as trauma surgeons if we're serious about it. And I think this is my life's work. Now, before I conclude, uh, I obviously prepared this talk uh, in advance. And just before I was to give it, Trump announced his plans to call uh, for nationwide concealed carry laws and an end to all restrictive gun policy. Now, I've presented the information that this is exactly the opposite for what's effective violence intervention policy. And I eagerly await the alternative facts that the administration has based this policy on. But I think if we want to protest uh, this administration, uh, this slide is a good example, perhaps, of what a reasonable demand could be. And that is, what do we want? Evidence-based science. And when do we want it? After peer review. So thank you. I want to thank everyone again for joining us at the Knife at the Gunfight. I hope you found that interesting. Since the first uh, presentation of this talk, uh, not only has Donald Trump carried through on his promise to undo all of the restrictive gun laws uh, that he is able to, but a episode of violence, a shooting at Red Emma's bookstore and coffee house, has really rocked uh, the Baltimore community. Red Emma's is located at the intersection of North Avenue and Charles Street and is also, I think, an important cultural intersection for many parts of the city. This violence hits close to home and is a reminder of the importance of the work that we have in front of us. Thank you for listening today. I suspect that this may have been the first surgical grand rounds in New York to ever contain a Black Lives Matter slide. In any case, the music that you heard during this podcast, three versions of a song, O Baltimore. The first was Nina Simone's 1978 version from the album Baltimore, which was a remake of the Randy Newman song Baltimore. And last was the 2015 release from Baltimore's Diamond Blue, 
also called Old Baltimore, which will close out the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please take the opportunity to subscribe or like us on iTunes or SoundCloud or your favorite podcast distribution system. And I'll see you next time. My city full of failed dreams Young brothers dying, he ain't make it out his teens Five o'clock on the news, I saw it on the screen The drugs, the killings, I witnessed the same thing At a young age, that's why I'm in the rage Funeral parades, gunshots in the air, sweet serenade Out of town, they asked me, was the wife fake? I told them, come to my city, you probably wouldn't stay Cause that shit ain't compared to what it's like today The dope gang got everybody trimming everybody Pack a pistol cause the murder rate high I Told my homie, be safe, never know you're gon' die the temperature rise, that's when the tempers rise Stress and smoke a weed like it's legalized If you wanna see the struggle, look right in my eyes Heard they shot them over nothing every day life No girl 13, getting grown, having sex in a mother in the other room Nodding off mat, daddy ain't around, nah, she ain't meet him yet In the house where it start, yeah, that's where they need him at All the money in the world couldn't bring that back Fake real nigga turned out here rat No cut cars when I'm on these tracks Keep it real with my city, yeah, I owe them that Be more Jungle where I come from Heart frozen Coping from lost loved ones From a crooked ass police Discharge guns Stress weight on my brain Witness this shit gonna change Trust me I know that it could The city that made me get that understood My life is a gamble I better be good Some go to the left They future ain't bright Now you didn't see it Your vision ain't right Man go clear your sight The black of your skin The heart of your life The streets full of sin As dark as the night Watch you got your back You might feel a knife They shut down the schools They can't read or write Just some dummies with guns About to blow Watch your light, all that over stripes Dying now the beat pumped up And somebody got struck Ambulance on the way, now the streets fucked up Nah, you don't really feel me, man, the streets fucked up Hella potholes, every sister's not knows Well, I make it out the city, tell the truth, I don't know It's a test every day, that's until your eyes close These blocks like blocks, homie, ain't no safety I learned so much, Baltimore City crazy Niggas that you ever saw All this hating ain't gon' get us far Let's get this bread Chill with that beef and get money instead Get mama a house, get your man out the feds You see the change, homie, we almost there The struggle, the pain, had us close to the ledge Sweating the tears, all that blood we done shed This to stand at the top without enemies' heads You heard that shit You telling me that you don't deserve that shit I'm trying to be a legend, yeah, that's why I never
quick The world need to know that Baltimore the shit You starting quick, acting like my city don't exist Yeah, right when it's crunch time Want my name in the lights, tell them showtime I'm giving game this advice, you should use mine Yeah, the love and the hate, it's a thin line Growing up in this city None of it, it ain't pretty As long as y'all trust in me I'm gonna keep a rep in my city Oh,